Good morning. Please stand for the reading of the word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the glories of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, as Scott mentioned, we had a great... For those of you who missed it last week, we had a great New Year's Day service. We looked at the song Amazing Grace uh, that was written 250 years ago, and we wanted to start the year on a tone of grace. We got to sing that song this morning, which was great. Uh, so today we, we begin our uh, New Year's series that will take us through uh, beyond Easter, actually, that is we're going to look at Encounters with Jesus. And, you know, we just, re- we just went through Colossians in the fall, which we learned about life in Christ, what it means to have union with Jesus. And now we're going to look at the life of Christ. Who, who is this guy? What's he like, this person who we are united to uh, by faith? And so we're going to be looking at, at specific encounters that he had, sp- mainly with individuals, okay? So like the woman at the well, uh, Nicodemus. Peter, the rich young ruler, these encounters that he had, and we're going to just watch him in action. We're going to see how does he, how does he engage people? What, what does he care about? How does he confront people? Uh, what is on his heart? What are his priorities? And we get to see him really clearly through these encounters. And we'll also look at these characters, and oftentimes I think we'll find ourselves within them. And we get to see how did he 
change them? How did he transform them? And, and how is he wanting to do that in us today? Because we believe he's still alive and well and still at work changing people's lives. And so uh, it'll be a really neat opportunity to just see Jesus and how he is at work in people's lives today. And during the series, I'm asking people in our own community a simple question, which is this, how has Jesus changed your life? And um, so we're going to be hearing stories from our own church family uh, throughout the series of, of simple ways that that Jesus has changed people's lives. Some of them will be like the big story, like the big conversion story, how he changed lives. Some will be really simple, like just something that he's doing in their lives right now that may not be radical, but it's significant to them. So we're getting an opportunity to just see Jesus at work then and now, all for the purpose of seeking to follow him. So um, we start today with um, maybe, a, I think, an interesting encounter, the encounter that Jesus has with Satan uh, in the wilderness. And so we're just diving into the deep end, right? We're not, we're not going to kind of do this slowly, but we're just jumping right in. And um, the reality is this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all begin Jesus' public ministry with this encounter. And so I thought, what, kind of an interesting way to start a series is what would it look like um, to consider what was Satan's experience of Jesus. He had an encounter with him in the wilderness. What did he learn about this young man? If Satan were forced to stand up here and testify as to what he discovered about this young man, what would he have to say? So that's where we're gonna start, and then we'll, we'll be looking at more normal people after this week. Um, and you're gonna hear a story from someone in our own community uh, towards the end of my sermon, so um, that's all coming, so get ready. All right, you ready for this? Okay, so the encounter in the wilderness. Um, context, of course, that uh, um, I wanted Stephanie to read was the baptism of Jesus, which undoubtedly would have been a high point in his life at that time. He's 30 years old when he begins his public ministry, okay? He's lived 30 years of relative obscurity. Um, no one in the room knew his name, unlike Jacob and Rob. Um, just a guy growing up in a town, right? And uh, this is where he is publicly acknowledged by his father as the beloved son as the Messiah. And so if you can try to imagine, those of you who've been baptized, imagine Jesus. He's in the Jordan River. He gets baptized. Imagine him coming out of the water, and he sees something. And he sees the heavens part. I don't know what that looks like. Uh, maybe it's like clouds part. But he sees the heavens part, and he sees the Holy Spirit coming on him in the form of a dove and empowering him for his public ministry. And he, he sees that, and he hears something wonderful. It's a voice from heaven that says, you are my son. I love you. I am so pleased with you, okay? What every boy wants to hear from his dad, what every girl wants to hear from her dad, and he hears it, and, and it's public. Everyone hears it. He's affirmed as the beloved son of God, undoubtedly a high point for him, okay? That's an important context for uh, the wilderness. So chapter 4, verse 1 is where we pick it up. Let me read that verse again. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And I just want to say, you could preach a sermon series on that verse right there. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay? Some interesting things to think through in that. Um, but let me give you one, author's, uh, one artist's rendition of Jesus in the wilderness. Let's talk about the wilderness for a second. We've talked a lot about wilderness over the last couple of years. Um, but the wilderness 
is the place where that identity as beloved son of God is called into question. Okay, that's what the wilderness is. The wilderness is the place where all the tangible expressions of God's blessing and love and comfort are stripped away. Right? The wilderness is that place where you look around you and there's nothing in your concrete circumstances that would tell you God loves you. In fact, your circumstances would tell you otherwise. Okay? And uh, I mean, verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's a really easy verse to read right over in about 0.5 seconds, right? But any of you who've, who've tried fasting um, for more than a day... Uh, and then more than a week and two weeks and three weeks and four weeks and five weeks, right? can imagine the intensity of the sense of um, deprivation and uh, just desperation and vulnerability uh, that would come with that. And um, so the wilderness is that place where that, that truth, you're my beloved, is, is called into question circumstantially. Uh, some of you are in a wilderness season right now, and I know that. And you're looking around, and it doesn't look like God loves you very much. And Jesus is thrown into this, uh, this wilderness by the Spirit to be tested, okay? To have an encounter. This is encounters with Jesus. This is a power encounter, a showdown in the wilderness between the vulnerable Son of God and Satan. And the question, it's a test, it says, to be tested. Here's the test. What is this young man made of? Okay. Jesus, what makes you tick? What are you all about? What are your priorities? What is your ministry going to be about? And I just want to encourage you as much as you can today to embrace the full humanity of Jesus in a story like this. And we were talking about this, this passage as, as a staff this week. And you know, the question is like, are these theoretical temptations? Like, how tempting are these things? Like, Jesus is God, and so, like, is this, are we just sort of playing, we know the outcome, but I just want to encourage you today, without getting into a deep Christology, to, to embrace the full humanity of Jesus. And, and rather than think of Jesus as like this, you know, glowing God being that's sort of encased in flesh and floating a foot around, above the ground as he goes through his ministry, okay, I want you to consider him a young man. 30 years old, who really loves God, who's committed to his heavenly father and is filled with the spirit. But Hebrews tells us this, he was tempted in every way as we are. Every temptation that you encounter, he knows the tug and the pull of that temptation. Hebrews says this, although he was a son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. Okay? He had to, obedience was something he had to learn through tangible experience. Okay? Fully God and fully man. So I want to suggest these are, this is, these are real temptations. Okay? Okay, so let's consider this other person that he encounters, uh, Satan. I'm going to give you another image here. This would be kind of a classic uh, image. And what I actually want you to do today is ditch the traditional image of Satan that you see right here. Okay, we're used to the Satan, right? He's got the red suit. He's got the pitchfork and the horns. And this one, he's got some wings. Uh, sort of a cartoonish character. Um, I want to suggest who Satan is is far more sinister and far more powerful than what is depicted here. Okay, that he is a very dark and very real spiritual 
person, invisible, spiritual, but personal force with a will out in the world. He's very sophisticated. He's very smart. And he is bent on everything anti-God and anti-God's image bearers who are us. So my guess is if you actually were out there in the wilderness with Jesus, you probably wouldn't have seen that. All you would have actually seen is this, is, is a man hungry, desperate, and alone with his thoughts. My guess is that's all you would have actually seen. And I want to, um, I'm not going to go into a lot of the details of each of the, each of the temptations today, but I want to just think big picture about Satan and what his goals are and what his, his weapons are, his main weapons. So let me suggest, as I read this, here's his main goal. Um, it's interesting. Here's his, what his goal was not. Think of what you could do. If you, have a, if you have this young man out in the wilderness for four days, vulnerable, on his own, you're Satan, okay? I don't know if you've ever tried that thought experiment. You're Satan. What do you do? What do you do? What's your goal? And I, I just found it interesting this week, he doesn't threaten Jesus. He doesn't seek to really intimidate Jesus, or even he doesn't seek to kill Jesus, which he, he could do. What is his goal? His goal is to try to pull Jesus away from his father. That's the goal, to try to drive a wedge in this intimate, beautiful, loving relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly father. If you're the son of God, he says, if you're the son of God, he's, he's getting at that relationship. Are you the son of God? And what does it mean for you to be the son of God? But he's trying to create a bit of doubt in Jesus' mind about his relationship with his dad. And then some distrust that would ultimately lead Jesus to disobey his father and, and go the way of independence and self-reliance. And if you've ever read Genesis 3, that story should sound really familiar. Trying to get us to doubt and distrust the love of the father and then ultimately disobey and do our own thing. And this is what he's doing with Jesus, trying to break up that relationship of love and trust and intimacy. That's his goal. And notice what his weapon is. This is fascinating to me. Okay, his, not, his weapon doesn't come with a sword, right? I mean, I, I could think of, like, if I'm saying, I'm going to bring a thunderstorm, right? Like, or an avalanche. I'm going to see if I can, I can actually take this guy down. Those aren't his weapons. His weapon, his weapons are ideas. Okay, those are his weapons. He, he lays ideas before Jesus that are very compelling, that are very sophisticated. Uh, he twists, he suggests, he questions, but his weapons is, are in the, the world of the mind. It's ideas placed in the context of circumstances that are challenging. And I think that's Satan's weapon today. He, he wants to lay before us certain ideas in the context of certain circumstances. And that's where he does most of his work. Um, John Mark Comer, who many of you know, wrote a book called Live No Lies. And I've mentioned this uh, a couple, maybe a year or two, so this is familiar, but I love his metaphor for Satan. He's like, when you think of Satan in spiritual warfare, don't think about like, like a World War II image where there's like two opposing armies going after it. When you think of Satan, think of like a Russian hacker holed up somewhere in an office somewhere and, and spreading an online disinformation campaign. Okay, like guerrilla warfare, uh, online spreading false information that's sneaky and subtle and, and moving all around, but it's, it's ideas. 
And he doesn't usually show up in a big brute of force, but it's these ideas that he's spreading. I remember Pastor Adrian was here um, just last month, and I remember a couple years ago, um, we had him here, and I did like a Q&A with him. He's from Sri Lanka, if you don't know who that is. And, and I asked him the question that so many of us want to ask people from like other parts of the world, and I said, why don't we see more, um, you know, we always see about like demon possession and satanic activity in, in some of developing nations. Why don't we see more of that in America? Uh, why don't we see more of that activity? And his response, I will never forget. He said, um, Satan is alive and well in America. And he went on to mention essentially ideas that have captivated the culture of America. He talked about materialism, okay? This idea that life consists in the abundance of possessions. And he's like, why, does Satan, why would Satan need to use possession when he can just use materialism to get us? Um, he talked about the erosion of the family in America, the nuclear family, and ideas that have eroded that. Ideas about what marriage is, about what I deserve, about where freedom and, and happiness is found. And you see, this, you see the, the, the family structure eroding because of ideas. He talked about ideas about the unborn, ideas about what my rights are, what my freedoms and what I should be able to do with myself and, and how that leads to many lives lost. He talked about ideas and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the realm he works in. And there, there's, there's ideas that have captured uh, the cultural imagination of, of our nation and any nation. This is how he works. And then, of course, we could think big picture culturally, but then we have all the, the, the subtle ideas that he goes after each one of us individually, right? Messages that are placed at the right time in certain circumstances that cause us to distrust our Father. Messages like um, God... God will always be disappointed in me, right? Or a simple message like, I deserve better. <laughs> or um, I have to be in control, right? Whatever messages that get at us. And um, as with like, you know, like an online disinformation, you know, now we've got all these algorithms, right, that are tailored to you and now the advertisements hit you. And like Satan has a very complex algorithm with all of us. You know, like he knows that. He knows our vulnerabilities. He knows those things. And so... But this is what he does with Jesus. This is his M.O., okay? He uses ideas in the context of specific circumstances to, to separate us from our Father, okay? To separate us from our identity as the beloved. And that's what we looked at in Colossians. We're in Christ. That word pronounced to Jesus at his baptism is now pronounced over us. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. I'm well pleased with you because you are in my son Jesus, okay? But he wants, to, he wants to separate us from that identity, to distrust, to doubt, and disobey. And usually disobedience means choosing what is easy and what is comfortable over what is right and faithful. It's certainly what it would have meant for Jesus in this. So this is the essence of the encounter. Will Jesus continue to trust in his Father and obey, or will the circumstances and the ideas cause him to crack under pressure? You with me? Okay. Relevant to our lives. Yes? All right. So let's, um, let's just look briefly. I'm going to go really quickly through these, these individual temptations, because that's the main thing I wanted us to, to see today. And I think it's so relevant to our daily lives. But let me just walk through these uh, real quickly. They each deserve their own sermon. They're not going to get that. 
Temptation number one, right? Uh, verse three, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So I'm gonna suggest this. The, the, the essence of this first temptation, it's a matter of dependence. Will Jesus choose to depend on his father or will he choose the way of independence and self-reliance and provide for himself? Uh, if you're the son of God, right? What kind of dad treats his son this way, leaves his son out in the wilderness to starve? And you're the Messiah. You have power. You can provide for yourself. Provide for yourself. Relieve your sufferings. Satisfy your cravings. And what Jesus does is he quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, and all three of his responses are quoting from Deuteronomy. And he is reliving the experience of Israel when they went through the wilderness for 40 years. And all the tests that they had are the same tests that Jesus had. So he draws on the lessons of, of the wilderness experience for Israel as his, as his response to Satan. Here it is. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The lesson for Israel in the wilderness was this. God essentially put them in a circumstance intentionally where they would be brought to the end of their own resources. Each day they'd wake up and they didn't have it in themselves to provide food for themselves, right? And they were forced into day-by-day -day dependence on God who then provided this miracle manna. And the wilderness was there to, to teach them man doesn't live on bread alone, by his own resources, by his own provision, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, you need to learn to rely on a God who can produce bread out of thin air, essentially. And Jesus draws on that experience and he says, yeah, I, I could provide for myself and I'm really hungry. And I promise you, that was a tough, that was a tough one to walk through 40 days without eating. But he says, I'm going to choose dependence on my father. And right now, my father's will for me is that I don't eat. That's, he wants me be, to be fasting. And so I'm going to count obedience to my father as more satisfying to myself than feeding myself with bread. But it's an issue of dependence versus disobedience, okay? All right. I told you I wasn't going to do any of these uh, much... They deserve a lot more than that. But um, so many of these are so relevant to our lives. Look at the second one. Devil takes him to the holy city, right? Takes him to the, the, the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And here's the temptation. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he, he quotes from scripture. Satan has memorized scripture, I promise you that. And he says, the Psalms tell, tell you that, that God's going to protect the Messiah. So he, here's, here's the temptation. Um, He's trying to get Jesus away from actually trusting in God's word to him, that God spoke to him at his baptism. And he's saying, Jesus, if you're the son of God, um, again, uh, you've been out here for a long time, and I don't, I don't know what kind of a God, you know, leaves his son alone in the wilderness to be hungry. And if I were you, <laughs> I would be wondering if God loved me. I mean, I know he said something to you, but that 40, I guarantee you that, that 40 days felt like an eternity ago. Like, there, I'm looking out and... It doesn't look to me like God loves you. Um, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But there's a way that you can find out for sure if he loves you. And here it is. Jump. Jump. And the scriptures say that God will protect you. You jump, he's going to step in and rescue you, and you will have a tangible, concrete sign of God's love and affirmation. You will know it. You don't have to trust the word he said. You'll see it with your eyes. Okay? It's, it's a... It's a it's a temptation towards needing certainty 
in his concrete circumstances rather than trusting the word that his father spoke to him. And any of you who are in the wilderness right now or can think of a wilderness season, you know how, how strong that temptation is. Sometimes when you've been going through a hard time and you kind of know, like, I know this says that God loves me, but when you're in the wilderness for a while, you start to go, it really does not feel like he loves me. In fact, it kind of feels like, God, you're screwing with my life right now. Like, are you serious? This, this keeps happening again and again, and um, I, I don't, this is, not what, this is not what love looks like to me. Let me just say that. And the temptation is then to say, God, to set terms with God, essentially say, God, if you loved me, you would do this right now, right? If you loved me, you would provide this. If you loved me, you would take this away, surely. And we stop trusting in the word that calls us beloved. We start doubting that. And we say, God, love needs to look like this. Or I don't know if I'm very interested in your kind of love. And that's the temptation for Jesus here. And Jesus says, verse 7, it's also written again from Deuteronomy, don't put the Lord your God to the test. No, I'm not going to test God. That way. And Israel constantly tested God in the wilderness, right? God, if you loved us, you'd provide food. He provides food. God, if you loved us, you'd bring water. He brings water. God, if you loved us, you'd protect us from these people. Right? Constantly testing God. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. I could jump but why do I need to do that? He told me he loves me, and I believe him. I'm going to trust in that word spoken over me, no matter what my circumstances are. And I, I, Satan, I, you're right. I, I can't make full sense of what's happening right now. <laughs> but I'm going to continue to cling to that word and trust that my father loves me. I'm not going to disobey him. I'm not going to set terms with God about how he has to treat me. All right? That's temptation two. Temptation number three, the issue of worship, right? Uh, look at verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So Satan shows Jesus something that he really wants, okay? The kingdoms of the world. Satan doesn't show him this thing and Jesus like, what are the kingdoms of the world to me? I don't want that. No, that's what he wants. That's why he was born, to rule over the kingdoms of the earth, okay? to be king of kings. This is why he's come into the world. So he very much wants what Satan is presenting to him. And here's the temptation. Jesus, I'll give you what you want, and I'll give it to you fast, cheap, and easy. Right? I, I'm not going to put you through this long road of humility and suffering and death that your father, what kind of a father would do that to his kid, that he's going to put you through. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you now. Okay? Just worship me. One token bow of the knee. You don't even have to mean it. <laughs> Just bow and it's yours. It's the temptation to, obviously, to worship something other than God, and to choose a way that is much easier than uh, God's way. And I would say, uh, you know, we've never been presented with like a, a clear moment of bowing down before Satan in our lives, but every single one of us relates to this temptation. Uh, when we're going through life and, and God's way for us seems really slow or painful or humbling, 
Um, it is so tempting to go after these other gods because we know they'll give us what we want faster than easier and cheaper than he will. And so we go to the gods of whatever it is, of money or of sex or of food or of drink or of retaliation, these other kind of gods because we know I'm gonna get what I want a lot faster and easier than if I go God's slow and painful way. And this is what's presented to Jesus. And Jesus' response is so beautiful, again, from Deuteronomy. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus looks out at this long path before him in this easy alternative that Satan presents to him. And he, I think, I imagine if he could see Satan in the, in the, in the face, he looked him in the eyes and said, sorry, my heart's already spoken for, Satan. Like, I am devoted to my father. I will never turn from him. I will never bow down to anything besides him. And his way may be hard and long and painful, uh, but I'm going to trust him. And I will never worship anyone other than my father. And then he says, now get away. And Satan does. And I love that little detail. The angels come at the end and they, uh, they minister to Jesus. I would love to have seen what that, what that looked like. Okay, so are you still with me? Yeah, okay. So this is a series on encounters with Jesus. And what I want to ask is, what has Satan learned from his encounter with Jesus? He, if he were forced to step up here and testify, what has he learned about this young 30-year-old man? And I believe it is this. He would have to say this. This young man is fully devoted to his heavenly father. 100%, his heart is entirely given to his father, to loving him, to worshiping him, to depending on him, to trusting in him no matter what, uh, and to walking the path he has. And he will not crack, he will not break, he will not turn from that. You cannot get him to budge from his identity as the beloved son of God, from his desire to worship and serve and honor his heavenly father. And he would hate to have to say that to us. But that's what he would have learned about Jesus. Um, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis uh, that many of you will know from Screwtape Letters. Satan's cause is never more in danger than when a human being, such as Jesus in this moment, intending to do God's will, looks around about a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. And this is the wilderness moment. Looks around why have I been forsaken? Where is God? And yet I will still obey. Of course, Jesus will say that again later at the cross. Why have I been forsaken and yet still obey? It is what I would call ruthless trust in God. There's a book called Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning uh, that I read years ago. I love that phrase. Here's one of the quotes. Against insurmountable obstacles and without a clue as to the outcome, the trusting heart says, Abba, I surrender my will and my life to you without any reservation and with boundless confidence for you are my loving Father. This is the way of Jesus. It is the way of ruthless trust in the Father. No matter what the circumstance and no matter what ideas are, are tugging at our minds. So we are called to walk in the way of Jesus. I was really struck by this verse this week. Whoever claims to live in him, which was our Colossians series, must walk in the same way that Jesus walked. If we claim to believe Jesus, if we claim to be Christians, we must walk 
the way Jesus walked. And today what we're learning is the way of Jesus is the way of ruthless trust in the Father. When circumstances call his love into question and when the enemy's ideas are ringing loudly in our minds, it's to stay clinging to him, to trust in his love, to trust in his goodness towards us, and to walk with him and to follow him and to worship him through thick and thin. So what I want to do is I want to, we're going to have a story shared right now of, of someone in our community. And I liked it for this week because it's a, it's a story of a bit of a wilderness season um, that was going on for 23 years and how, um, how God has showed up, how Jesus has showed up uh, in that wilderness season. So I'm going to share this for you. It's about four or five minutes, uh, four to five, not 45. Um, and then I'm going to come back up and just offer like two, two minutes of final words. Uh, and his wife doesn't even know this is about to happen, which is my favorite part of it. Good morning. My name is Randy Berkstead, and my wife Lisa and I have been coming to Grace for about 15 years. I wish I had a lightning bolt moment about how Jesus changed my life, but my story is more one of the gradual change that has occurred since a difficult circumstance. Uh, in my late 20s and early 30s, I lived a very active lifestyle. I was on three basketball teams, an indoor volleyball team, played beach volleyball tournaments, during one of those beach volleyball tournaments, I took an awkward dive and hit my head in the sand, uh, severely herniating two discs in my neck. Not life-threatening, but very painful. Uh, not exactly um, a burning bush moment or Gabriel in a dream, but this was the moment that my life changed. It took almost a year to get a proper diagnosis, and eventually I'm sitting in the neurosurgeon's office and asked him how long till I can play basketball again. And he said, you can't play basketball anymore. You need to take up music or poetry. And that would have been funny to me, except for the fact that I was so scared about what I was facing. So the healthy activities that had been my obsession or, or the majority of my lifestyle really um, were no longer available to me as ways to spend my time. So I'm convinced that Jesus came alongside me in this moment and at this time in my life to really help me process through what I was, was going through. Spine surgery by definition is serious. And in addition to fear about would the strength of my arm come back, would the pain go away? I, I also had the emotional challenge of what was I gonna do with my time and, and how would my identity be formed? So at this time, someone said to me, uh, you just achieve your sports quota at a young age. <laughs> and it seems like a throwaway comment, but it actually really helped me kind of process going through this uh, change in my lifestyle that I was gonna have to, to um, execute. And so um, I still play golf, I'm still active, but my feet have to stay firmly planted on the ground. And through this process, uh, I felt like I kind of had a right to be bitter and angry um, and frustrated, but uh, I didn't really experience those emotions after the surgery and after I started to heal. Um, and I'm reminded of uh, one of Dave's comments around humility and that it's not about thinking less of ourself, it's about thinking of ourself less. And I, I think I've pretty much defined living a selfish lifestyle and this really kind of set me on a path towards uh, just thinking of myself less. And I'm reminded of, of Jesus and his um, trip down to earth uh, to be on earth with us humans, as flawed as we are, and 
accepting his fate of dying on the cross and the physical pain that he had to go through and that he accepted that as part of, of God's plan. And my little injury and the, the small changes I've had to my lifestyle to make in my lifestyle uh, are minor in compared to what he had to go through. And that's some comfort for me. So in that, I had to look for new ways to spend my time. And at the time I was attending Mariner's Church and they had Lighthouse Ministries and the Mini Street Learning Center. And so I volunteered to tutor, I believe, a big believer in education. And so through that process, um, God has provided lots of different ways for me to volunteer and, and, and serve uh, over the last 23 years. And I think that's uh, been a big part of the, the growth I've experienced in this process since my injury. Um, I needed to accept a different reality not so focused on getting every ounce out of my life that I felt I deserve, but ex accepting um, God's help in my efforts to be more like him. Uh, surprisingly, probably only to me, but not to anyone else, um, it has been 23 years of growth and improved relationships, not just with God, but also with others around me. And um, I feel like I still have a really long ways to go. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Um, I love that. That's like, um, it's a wilderness of sorts that God has uh, brought uh, beauty out of humility, dependence, and actually deeper ministry than would have happened other than that. All right, let me, I want to close. Um, we're talking about temptation uh, today, Jesus. I, I want to just close it as you've seen Jesus in action and just ask you that question. Where... Where do you face temptation in your life, okay? And um, I just have two final thoughts for you. Um, and they're kind of obvious, but I think they're really important because we all are facing temptation constantly. Um, but here's the first point. Where and when you experience temptation, so obvious, um, we can call on Jesus when we face temptation, okay? I was thinking of this passage in Hebrews 2. It's so simple. Because he, was, he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How often in a moment of temptation do you remember, Jesus, you know how to do this better than I do. You've walked this before. You know what it's like. And so you're the perfect person to step in with me and help me in this moment. And so when we're in moments of temptation, rather than trying to rely on our own willpower or already starting to like separate ourselves from God because I'm, I think I might, I'm about to do this thing so I just kind of want to get distance from him to do this thing, what would it look like in the moment to actually call out for help and say, help is available, this passage says, from the one who's utterly capable because he's powerful enough and he knows what it's like. And so what would it look like more regularly rather than relying on your own willpower to just say, Jesus, I can't do this. You can help me right now. I want to invite you into that simple act of calling for help when you're in a moment of temptation. And then you can blame him if it doesn't go well. You know, you get to... Um, and then finally, I want to end this way. Um, where, where do you most often fail in your life in temptation? Okay, I want you to like, think about what are those areas. Uh, here's some Could be lust. Could be greed, could be fear, could be anger, could be gluttony, okay? 
could be a bunch of different things. But my question to you is, what do you do when you fail? And here's, after reading this passage this week, here's something we can do. When you fail, when you experience the regret and you're feeling even the shame, here's what we can do. We can celebrate the obedience of Jesus. Like actively celebrate the obedience of Jesus through every temptation because his obedience is our salvation. Okay? Because the fact that he didn't give in to the temptation that you just you know, gave into again and again and was faithful to God through thick and thin, that reality is our salvation. That is why you have forgiveness because God sent him on this painful mission which was to be the sinless sacrifice for all of our sins. And that mission required perfect obedience on his part every day of his life so that he could go to a cross and be the perfect sinless sacrifice so that all of our sin could be laid on him and he could pay the penalty for that and that we could then receive his perfect righteousness, okay? And so what would it look like in the midst of our failings to celebrate the one man who never failed for our benefit. And, and, you know, we've read this passage so many times. We read it in hindsight, right? We know he's going to pass. But I, I just wish we could have been there in real time to watch a young 30-year-old man face the, the strongest temptations. And if we knew that our salvation is on the line here, and he has to decide, is he going to eat this bread or not? Is he going to jump from this, from this you know, temple or not? Is he going to bow down? And every time we're suspended, like in a great sporting event, wondering, is he going to pull it off or not? And every time he does, we are cheering because him making it is our salvation every single time. Amen? Yeah. And so what would it look like in moments of shame and guilt to turn instead to faith and to say, thank you, Jesus for your obedience to your Father, because that's why I don't have to stay in shame and guilt. And we can be a people, even in our brokenness, and especially in our brokenness, who celebrate the faithful obedience of Jesus to his Father through thick and thin for our sakes. So let's pray, and let's celebrate that through these songs that we're going to sing. Well, Lord Jesus, um, you said it so well. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's how I think all of us in this room feel about ourselves. The spirit is willing. We long to do the right thing. We want to trust in our Father and obey him every time. And the flesh is so weak. We're just not as strong as we'd like to be. And so today we just say thank you that you were strong enough that you faced every temptation and you conquered and you stuck and clung in faith and obedience to your Father. Would you, Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on us in a fresh way in this new year to give us renewed strength to face Satan, especially in those areas of weakness that many of us have, that all of us have. Would, you, would your spirit empower us to stay close to our Father in those moments rather than get split and separated from him? And may we celebrate you. May every failing, every sin be an opportunity to experience grace in the gospel in a fresh way. And even now as we worship, would you turn our eyes to you, our sacred brother, our, the, the author and pioneer of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.